In 2000, about 20% of the computers we shipped were notebooks. About the same as the industry. In 2003, San Francisco was still recovering from the 1990s dot-com boom and bust. There was talk of a Web 2.0 movement forming from the shrapnel. Now, during this year, San Francisco was also one of the biggest cities that participated in the March 20th protests against the invasion of Iraq. In many ways, this San Francisco was a trendsetter for what was to come ten years later. The seeds of the Occupy movement. The beginnings of a national shift towards excessive wealth, spearheaded by technological innovation and the ubiquity of smartphones. Like Gabriel Roth, I lived in San Francisco during the early part of this century and unknowingly moved to Brooklyn just before the city wasn't as welcoming to the freaky or the working class or the different. And Roth's very subtle evocation of place is, I think, what makes his debut novel, The Unknowns, considerably more than mere lad-lit or boy fiction. I discussed much of this with Roth in person. He was extremely gracious to talk with me in a humid and sweltering room on somewhat short notice. This is especially admirable because the man did indeed have a beard. Anyway, the conversation you were about to hear gets into brony culture, Roth's days at the Bay Guardian, a free alt-weekly that I read quite diligently during my 13 years living in San Francisco, and tips he picked up from an MFA program. Now, if you're just joining us, welcome! My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. We're on a partial hiatus from radioactivity right now, so there won't be a Follow Your Ears show this month, and this is the last program I am producing this month. But I will be back with new conversations in August. Unexpected developments have forced me to take a self-imposed digital break, but I did want to get Gabriel into the mix because while this book has been getting some very positive press, I felt that there were several angles the critics weren't picking up on, and I wanted to address them with Gabriel in person. So without further ado, here is Gabriel Roth. Okay, so I am here with Gabriel Roth, who is most recently the author of The Unknowns. Gabriel, thank you so much for being here and for sweating in this room. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wanted to first of all start off with you leaving San Francisco in 2006. I left in 2007. We both ended up in Brooklyn. And this is one of those interviews where why didn't we actually know each other during that decade that we were there? I'm wondering how aware you were that the city was falling apart, was being uh, taken by the Google people, by the private buses. Uh, what caused you to flee to Brooklyn, and uh, was this novel in some way a way of reckoning with that? Well, you know, I left mostly for personal reasons. I, I was living with a woman who is now my wife and who wanted who was starting a graduate program at Columbia, yes. and, and so that was the immediate impetus for me to leave, although I had been in San Francisco for 10 years. Uh, and, and as you probably know, 10 years is a long time to spend in San Francisco. I was there for 13, so. Yeah, it, it, you start to feel that time passing under your feet a little bit. Um, I it was not yet clear in 2006, or at least it wasn't yet clear to me what was going to happen with the second internet boom and what was going to happen to the city as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, I had been there since 1996, uh, and so I had seen the first internet boom, which had sort of effloresced in, in the late part of the millennium and then died out very quickly yeah. uh, in the first years of, of the aughts. Uh, and so I, I probably would have thought that any new economic activity was going to follow a similar boom and bust pattern. And now it, it, it's not clear that that's actually what's going to happen. Yeah. Or if there is a bust, the city will have been pretty permanently changed and marked by the boom, it seems like. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, because the present boom underway is 
I remember the first one, and that seemed brutal at the time, and I was very fortunate to have an apartment in which the rent had not gone up, as were many of my friends, and we somehow managed to secure apartments. Now I'm hearing reports from friends who are basically cleaving to their apartments, hoping that their their buildings won't be taken over and so forth. And and uh, I guess uh, my, my, my tangent here was, if you weren't entirely aware, does moving away from San Francisco and writing a novel actually allow you to be, wow, all this was going on, I really was as shrewd as I was, I really wasn't paying attention. Yeah, there, there is a certain amount of that, obviously. Um, the, you know, I began the novel and I had gotten a good two-thirds of the way into a draft by the time I left San Francisco. So a lot of the, the scenarios and the physical environment that I was describing was what was immediately around me as I was doing that first stage of writing. And then moving away, and, and I think this is probably true in general for writers, the Active writing is often, I think, an act of recapturing and of preserving your memories, sort of freezing them in, in sentences. Uh, and I think it worked that way for me, partly about the city of San Francisco and the environment around the first dot-com boom, but then also about a time in my life. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, it's very difficult to separate out the place where you were in your early 20s from the experience of being in your early 20s. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how so? Could you elaborate on that? It almost seems like you're kind of mining through your own data and trying to separate it into emotion and tangible information. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the book is in part about San Francisco and about people working in technology and about collecting data, but then it's also about a young man who's preoccupied with looking for love and finding someone to be intimate with and close to. Uh, and it's not an autobiographical book and the character isn't the same person as me, but that experience of being in my early 20s and, and really wanting to figure out how to love somebody and be loved by somebody, that was, uh, I was preoccupied with that for a long time. And, and those experiences, along with the experiences of the social world of San Francisco, uh, are what went into the book and what sort of got filtered through the, the fiction writing process in, into the novel. And so there's no way that I can say, oh, yes, this is just a sort of satirical or, or a observational portrait of a, of a little microcosm of the world because it's all wrapped up with my own subjective experience. Yeah. So you had two-thirds of a draft before you moved here to Brooklyn. Uh, what did moving to Brooklyn produce in terms of clarity for both Eric and for the view of San Francisco that you had? Well, uh, let's see. Around the time that I, I moved out here, you know, I had finished the MFA program at San Francisco State. I, I had a bunch of chapters. I was trying to figure out, I, I knew where the book was going to go, but I was trying to sort of stick the landing, which was not straightforward. And I think it's probably not usually straightforward with writing a novel. Uh, and then we moved out here and we were in our early 30s, mid 30s even. And, and it, it was no longer a time when I would have moved to Brooklyn and gone out drinking every night or made a whole bunch of new friends or I wasn't going to go out on dates because I was living with my girlfriend. And and so it, it, moving to, to New York, which for many people is like stepping onto the big stage. Yeah. For, for me, it, that was a time when I was a bit more isolated and I was going to work every day and, and getting my pages done and then coming home and eating dinner with my wife. Uh, and I think that was important in terms of finishing the, the thing. Yeah. So the isolation allowed you to finish the book. It yeah. allowed you to come to terms with and, and put aside this particular part of yourself in your twenties. Yeah, I think that's right. It was it was putting a, a clean break on on what I had been doing and what I was going to be starting doing from now on. Did you have any other novels before this? I was curious. 
Uh, not that you would actually call a novel. I had like a pile of pages that I had written during National Novel Writing Month in 2003 or something like that that added up to nothing but a pile of pages. I think I remember reading one of your Bay Guardian columns where you were, I think you wrote about in the Bay Guardian writing for the National uh, Novel Writing Month. Uh, probably. Yeah, I, totally, I remember that. Right, well, that's, 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 I was a loyal Bay Guardian reader when I lived there, so that was you. You describe a medium-expensive neo-Cuban restaurant with the kind of desserts that have names evocative of Catholicism near Lazarus, your invented Valencia Street bar, which clearly evokes cha-cha-cha. You have the photographs of tailfin cars, which are sort of like Mel's Diner, but not quite. Fiction, this is not reality. Imagination should be encouraged. But this does lead me to ask you about creating a believable San Francisco for this book. Obviously, you have to rely on things that actually exist, but you know, do you have any dangers of being too specific when you're creating a sense of place like this? I mean, it seems that you, you want to alert people like me who have, in fact, passed and entered into cha-cha-cha that this is indeed the San Francisco of that era. But I'm, I was curious about that fine line between telegraphing exactly what it is and uh, just making shit up. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the main issue that you're talking about is with the restaurants, yeah. frankly. There's a lot of restaurants, and most of the restaurants, as you point out, like if, if you were going out to eat in the Mission in the, the early part of the 21st century, you, you've probably eaten in some of those restaurants. Uh, I, I didn't worry about that, and I guess I think that's fine. And if you're reading it and, and you're in the small subset of people who are going to recognize those restaurants, then hopefully that, that's a sort of pleasant moment of recognition for you. Maybe it's distracting, in which case, my bad. But most people are not going to fall into that category. And, and I think without, uh, without some amount of specificity, whether it's based on real life specificity or completely fantastic specificity, uh, without that, then it just becomes a sort of generic restaurant and, and the whole thing sort of looks flat. Putting in uh, detail, in, in this case, often detail borrowed from actual restaurants where I ate most of my meals during the 10 years I lived in San Francisco, uh, putting in that detail, hopefully, gives the thing the feeling of something that takes place in a real world that that's fully stocked with with all the the stuff of the real world yeah but it is your world it is eric's world and i guess my question is not so much uh going ahead and i'm going to go ahead and go through the unknowns i'm going to cut and paste all those phrases and put them on yelp no that's not what i'm talking about (laughs) what i am talking about is the idea that you know this is fiction it does require invention it is not going to be a pure 100 percent depiction of san francisco and so where do you deviate between that specificity and uh just inventing something that just doesn't exist but is real enough for the reader to believe whether the reader be from San Francisco or the reader be somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, really, it depends on the needs of the particular paragraph. You know what I mean? If like, and, and what comes to my mind as I'm writing it. If I, if I'm, uh, let's say again, a restaurant, and if I'm sending the two characters to a restaurant, and I need to envision it, and you know how sometimes in your dreams or your fantasies, sometimes there will be a place that doesn't really exist, and sometimes the whole, all of the events will transpire in a place that does exist, but those things never happened there. Or it's a place that does exist, only now they're serving vegetarian food in, instead of Mexican food. Um, and, and writing a novel seems to me exactly the same process, that you borrow these elements from the real world, but, but unless you're writing a novel that's just a direct transposition of real life, which this certainly isn't, uh, the, the filtering process is, is going to transform it to, to whatever degree is necessary. So Eric describes himself to Maya as a life support system for feelings of anxiety. The anxiety is the organism, and I am the habitat. Yet he tells his story in this book much like a programmer, almost as if he's writing clean lines of code. Uh, the habitat of this book may indeed describe anxieties, but it's 
you know, it's, it seems like it's reliant more upon nouns and adjectives rather than verbs. And I, I was curious about this. Did you impose any kind of stylistic ordinances upon your character to push his anxieties beneath the text? I mean, verbs are certainly the way that we absolutely spill out our emotion, and yet he seems to not use them as such. I, I'm wondering if this is something you were conscious or whether it was designed, whether it emerged through revision or whatnot. It's interesting. I, I certainly don't, when I'm writing, think in terms of parts of speech like that. Uh, I, I, I'm not a sufficiently programmatic writer to be able to do that, uh, and I, I don't think it would help me. I'm, I'm sure there's some people for whom that would be a useful way to think about things. Uh, I do think, and the sentence that you quote is a good example of this. Um, uh, you know, he, he's, he's out on a date with this girl, and she says to him, he, he says something that seems uh, uptight or, or anxious, and she says, do you consider yourself an anxious person? And he says, I consider myself a life support system for anxiety. The anxiety is the organism, and I'm the habitat. And on the one hand, to some extent, that's an accurate description, but on the other hand, hopefully on a date, that's, that's a clever thing to say. That's a sort of witty and self-deprecating, but also self-revealing thing to say to a girl who you're trying to make fall in love with you. Uh, and rather than imposing a sort of restriction on Eric's speech, um, I think of that character as being both messed up in all of these ways and having these real psychological difficulties, making life really difficult for him, and at the same time being to some useful degree self-aware about that and able to talk about it, and as in that example, able to present it, in a, able to sublimate it into a self-presentation that hopefully is a little charming and a little attractive and that Maya at least responds to. Uh, and, and hopefully, to some extent, the reader will respond to it in that way as well. That he, he is an anxious person, and he is a self-conscious person, and yet his self-awareness about those things enables him to diffuse their effects a little bit. Yeah. So you don't think in terms of units of sentences, but do you think in terms of sentences? I'm curious. Because, I mean, I, I did get the sort of clean code feel from the prose, which I, sounds like I'm knocking it, but no, it actually works for the actual book. Sure, yes, and, and the sentence is really important. The sentence is the basic unit of meaning. Yeah. Um, and so every one of those sentences, every one of those sentences, hopefully I've gone over a little bit and, and the way they fit together, hopefully I've gone over a little bit. Um, in, I, I don't know if you're a, a programmer exactly. Um, do, you, do you write code yourself? Um, I, no, I have it for years and it was really like limited to like JavaScript and HTML, quite frankly. Yeah, so sure. I mean, not nowhere nearly on your league. So. Well, I, I'm, I'm only a couple steps above that. <laughs> okay. there, there's that thing with programming where you don't want to front in front of a real I mean, program. There was Fortran, there was COBOL, yeah, there was sure. that kind of stuff when I was a kid. But sure. yeah. Um, I, did, I didn't, I learned code in the course of researching and writing this book and I I, I had hoped that there would be useful analogies between writing code and, and writing prose. And in the end, I didn't find any that I could apply. I'm sure there are some. Um, the, the differences are too great in a way. You want each one. I mean, the thing that's similar is you, in writing code and in writing literary prose, you want each to be as elegant as possible. Uh, but the difference, and it, it's, a, it's an all-important difference, is that in writing code, any ambiguity is an error. And in writing prose, of course, especially literary prose, ambiguity is vital. Yeah. Uh, and and so there's a, a novel that was actually written in a in a zero ambiguity way, as though for a compiler like computer code, uh, that would be a, a, a it would be tricky to make that a successful literary novel. But the ambiguity I pointed out, the anxieties that were beneath the so-called code, mm. if we can call it the prose that, yeah. I mean, this leads me to, to, to wonder, you know, to what extent this kind of parallel between coding and prose was a way for you to almost 
blossom your own style or find a new way into this particular guy. I mean, it seems to me like he starts from very rigid data and then we start to see little emotions blossom from there. Yeah. Um, no, I think I, I, I like that as an observation. I think that's right. Or if it works, then it's right. Uh, if the book works, then that observation is right. Um, I was probably influenced less by computer code itself and more by the writing that has been done by computer programmers. I read a lot of essays by programmers, usually for lay people, but then also sometimes in programming blogs that are typically written for other programmers. And there are there are particular styles, partly because some very influential programmer writers are influencing other programmer writers, but also because there are ways of thinking that are common among programmers. Um, and that kind of very self-conscious eye-dotting and T-crossing and getting all of the facts and words in exactly the right place in order to build up to some kind of point that then the writer wants to hammer home and maybe allows him or herself a little bit more freedom and, and looseness. Uh, I think that probably got under my skin as I was thinking about Eric and how he would narrate this book. Learning code while you were writing this book, what what specifically did you steep yourself in, technologically speaking? Uh, well, I, I started with HTML, as one does nowadays, and I, I moved on to PHP, which is a, a much despised yeah. language that's very easy to run and, and to learn in, in the early stages. Uh, and I got to where I was doing a little bit of OS X and iOS programming in, in Objective-C, which is the programming language that you use to write programs for Apple devices. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting and really fun. And, and more than affecting my writing style, I think it gave me an insight into the experience that a, a really uh, genius programmer, a really expert programmer like the character, uh, gave me an insight into the, the experiences that he would have when he's really immersed in a project. Yeah. So you have a flashback chapter where My Little Pony emerges. And this lead, led me to wonder, well, uh, I wonder if uh, Gabriel was channeling his inner brony or addressing that particular subculture that is, in my view, regrettably infesting various corners of the internet. Uh, you know, was this a way of reflecting back upon how the germs of geekery become easily twisted in the course of dissemination or I was wondering if uh, bronies were on your mind when you that, were working on it. That's really interesting and no, not at all. I really like that. Uh, I wrote You're that, My Little Pony fan? Uh, no, not at You're all. You're not a brony, sir. <laughs> sir, I am no brony. Um, I wrote that chapter. I was in grad school. It would have been 2005. I certainly wasn't aware of the brony trend if it even exists, yeah. if it even existed at that time. Uh, and then it sort of sat there, and then there was this whole brony thing, and I, I hadn't even made the connection until you said it right now. But that's great if, like, uh, the the nerds of today have reappropriated the same material that I was picking up. Yeah. Uh, I was only thinking about um, what would a 13-year-old girl in 1996 or whenever it was uh, have had a lot of in her room. Uh, and, and that's what I came up with. Well, on the subject of interpretive import, I should, in fact, point out that Maya Markham is a very loaded name, Illusion Marketing Communications. Uh, it seems to me that through her particular perspective, you are, as I suggested earlier, commenting upon the corruption of a certain kind of idealism in San Francisco, or perhaps say it was always an illusion all along that uh, people, in fact, weren't the happy, sunny, granola-munching idealists who wanted to take over the world and became easily seduced by libertarian, neo-capitalist, technological cash-in-your-checks, allow your 401k to rack up, insert your stacked phrase of choice into this very long sentence. 
what of this? I, I, I love that, and I would love it if that had been my conscious intention at the time. Um, marketing communications, never thought of that, uh, at least not consciously, so I'm going to have to assume. Markham's, though, is a very clear marketing communications thing, now especially I, in the Bay Area. Now, now, now that you pointed out, yeah. I, can, I can see it clearly. I'm going to have to assume that when, I, when the name popped into my head, and I thought, yes, that fits, that sounds right, I have to assume that that was my unconscious making exactly the connection you're making now. Okay. Uh, yes. The the first name, uh, Maya, to me, uh, has a has a different kind of significance. Um, I'll, I'll leave that as an exercise for the reader. Yeah. But in terms of, I guess, the illusory shift, I mean, that was never on your mind when you were exploring San Francisco, whether writing the two-thirds draft there or here in Brooklyn from afar, staring upon the developments. Uh, you, were, you weren't really trying to contend with any specific uh, shift in ideology that was going to permanently change the city? It was more just your, your 20s? I mean, this was never on your mind at all? It, it was all on my mind. Um, I started this thing with the character of Eric, and and the, the main development for me over the course of writing it was to figure out the, the situation that would test him and, and in the end maybe break him, that would push him as far as he could go on his particular problems and personality quirks. Uh, and that's the love story plot. Um, and all of the stuff to do with San Francisco and programming and cultural shifts and so on, it works its way in. And, and I wanted to make it interesting and I wanted to draw parallels between this character and, and the larger situation, but not because I had some kind of essayistic argument that I wanted to make about the culture of San Francisco or the culture of technology but more because I wanted to have this character's story sort of ramify through the environment that he was in, because to me that's how a good novel should work. So, you know, I, I certainly did think about all these things. I thought about San Francisco and what it was like before and what it was like after and what it meant to be talking about San Francisco in uh, the end of 2002, the beginning of 2003, and that specific moment. Uh, and there's a character who sort of represents San Francisco's 1960s bohemian past yes. and there are other characters yeah. yeah and there are other characters who who represent San Francisco's technological present and future uh, but the point wasn't to arrange them in some symbolic way to make an argument. The point was to allow this character to sort of bounce off them and see what they might reveal about him and the situation that he was in. I think another way to approach this question is to ask you, well, it seems to me on one level this is a Bill Dung's Roman, but on another level it's a social novel, although not anything in the in the way of like, you know, Dos Passos or anything. Sure. Uh, not anything like, you know, that explicit. But uh, but I'm wondering, you know, to what degree you were vacillating between this hypothetical spectrum in the course of writing this, whether it started off initially moving towards the first type and then sort of steered towards the second type as you were trying to broaden and deepen this guy and the characters around him. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I think rather than that sort of chronological progression from one to the other, it was more like, you know, this was my first time out of the gate. This was my first shot at a novel. And I looked at all the novels that I really liked, yeah. and I wanted to see what they could do and what a novel could do. Uh, and, and, of course, novels can do a million different things, and this one only does a few of them. Yeah. But one of them is get inside people's minds and hearts, and I wanted to do that. And then another one is... Uh, capture something of the experience of being alive in a particular time at a particular place. And yeah. that means not just sort of the physical details of the environment, 
the sensory details, but also the, uh, I want to say ideological, not in a political sense, but just the currents of ideas that are going around among people in particular places at particular times, the things people are talking about and reading about and thinking about. Uh, and so I put those into more in an attempt to be descriptive than in an attempt to advance some sort of argument or some uh, vision. You got most of the ambitions out of your system as Bay Guardian reporter. <laughs> is, is that safe to say? That you didn't want to have the big, sprawling, massive novel that everybody else had? or Oh, no, I would have loved to do that. I didn't know if I could do that. Again, this is my first time out of the gate, and it seemed like, wow, if I'm going to put a bunch of energy into writing a novel, I should really optimize this project for something that I might be able to finish. Yeah. So the MFA program, I was curious about this. I mean, are there any things you have had to... Uh, People offer their various pro and con uh, arguments for MFA programs. And I'm wondering if there was what you got out of that that was positive that you can still apply today. And what what were there any particular mistakes that you picked up that you had to just wean out of your system? Yeah, people, you know, you, you do hear this argument a lot. Um, the first thing I should say is... I went to the program at San Francisco State because I was living in San Francisco and it was a state university and I was paying in-state tuition, so it was extremely cheap. Yeah. Uh, well, then it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's different now that California doesn't have any money. Yeah. But, uh, at the, you know, when people talk about an MFA program, often what they're talking about is moving somewhere across the country, uprooting your whole life, and then going into debt. Yeah. And that's a whole different proposition from staying in your apartment, going to classes several nights a week, and spending a few thousand dollars over the course of two years, which is obviously it's not negligible, but it was affordable for me. Uh, having said that, it was definitely the right decision for me, and, and the benefits far outweighed any downside. And indeed, I can't even immediately think of a downside. Um, there were things that the professors said, whether it was about my work or in a lecture or about somebody else's work, there were a few sentences that just as soon as they said them, I, I realized, oh, I need to take that sentence and hold on to it and keep it in my head because that's going to improve my work. And it did in very straightforward ways. Uh, I went in pretty ignorant about a lot of the very basic stuff of writing fiction. And, and a few times, if somebody can sort of steer you in the right direction, it, it saved me probably years of having to stumble around and figure that out myself. What were you ignorant of out of curiosity? What just, you just did not know, did not pick up through all your reading, through all your writing? A lot of stuff. It's, it's, it's remarkable how many books I had read for, how little I understood. Uh, the, the, the biggest one, probably, um, when, I, when I entered the program, I was unaware of the amount of work a fiction writer has to do to create a vivid uh, sensory world um, that's describing things visually and also in terms of the other senses. Uh, when you read good fiction, that's all, almost always, at least good fiction in a contemporary realist mode, um, that's almost always what's being done on one level. And, and the writer is usually working very hard to do that. Uh, and I just, I just missed that. I mean, I had absorbed it as part of what I was responding to, but I had missed it with my conscious head. Yeah. Uh, and so I had a professor there who would sort of make that point gently about almost everybody's story. He would say, you know, the characters are interesting and the, the story takes me somewhere, but I, I can't quite see it. And I noticed when he said that to, on the third or fourth story, I realized, oh, he's always looking for this one thing. I'm not going to let him say that about mine. And I went out before I turned my story and I went over it and made sure that everybody could see everything and everything was really vivid. And 
boy, that story got a lot better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it went from student work to something that was kind of functioning as a story, although not a particularly magnificent story. Uh, and and then as I was writing the novel, I, I continued to do the same thing. And I, I think it's part of what makes the thing fly to the extent that it flies. Well, I remarked upon this earlier with the restaurants and all that. But yeah. this is interesting to me because you were a reporter. So here you are working a job where you have to observe everything and notice everything and see how systems work on the local level and beyond and yet you can't seem to I guess reverse engineer that for lack of a better word in fiction why do you think that was a stumbling block for you well it's a different it's a different thing and that kind of systems thinking that I got from being a reporter I think had, was already in my fiction when I was starting out and was something that I was interested in and was pursuing but uh, news writing is often sort of abstract and a little bloodless and that's just part of the form I mean really good news writing is not like that but generic news writing is yeah. like that um, and that's sort of part of the form and and that was what I had learned to do and that was what I was pretty good at and that was what I was doing and then in fiction you have a whole different responsibility which is to to make the thing sort of blossom into a whole vivid sensory experience for the reader uh which you don't necessarily have to do even if you're doing news writing at a very high level was it more of this kind of automatic feel of your time at the Bay Guardian? I mean, people there have told me that the philosophy was there, write when you're drunk and revise when you're hungover, that that was shouted very frequently in the Bay Guardian newsroom. Yeah, all the, that was the publisher, Bruce Brugman. Yes, yes, was, I, exactly. That was, that was his, his motto. Yeah, that was one yeah, of his catchphrases. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, it doesn't, I think that came from a time when the paper was a small fly-by-night operation. And at the time... It's, well, it seemed to be propelling that particular myth for, yeah. <laughs> for, all, for its continued existence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, by the time I was there and, and I was the city editor and there were six reporters on staff and it, it had to function in, to some minimal degree of professionalism. Yeah. <laughs> how, how professional was it in hindsight? Uh, in, in hindsight, it was, you know, in hindsight, we got the paper out every week, which I'm still proud of as an achievement. Amazed uh, by? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, proud of and sli slightly amazed by, yeah. Uh, and, and there was some very good work done there. Yeah. So having a reporter character in this, I mean, it allows you to sort of revive some of these memories. And I'm wondering if uh, if there was any kind of hesitancy hesitancy on your part in, in sort of exploring material that you were already well steeped with. I mean, you know, write what you know versus write what you don't know is, is another debate that goes on, you know, ad infinitum. What didn't you know when you were writing The Unknowns? Because it seems that it's, despite its title, it seems to be very steeped in what you personally knew. <laughs> Uh, sure, there are definitely those elements, and, and certainly there are some sequences in the, in, in the newsroom, and Maya's character is a reporter at a paper that's very similar to The Guardian where I worked. Uh, there's so much that you don't know when you're doing this. Uh, you know, the, the character grows up in this sort of crappy suburb of Denver. Uh, his parents are sort of useless to him in different ways. And then he gets involved with, he, he makes a lot of money and then he, he, he's a terrific programmer and then he gets involved with this girl who has this very complicated set of psychological stuff. And, and all of that was such a mystery to me and involved different kinds of research and different kinds of imagination. There was no danger that I was going to feel like, oh, I'm just transcribing stuff that I already knew. Yeah. And so when there's a little island of, of stuff from experience, like there's a character who's a reporter for an alternative news weekly and at one point we're in the office and we see how that process works a little bit it, it was more like oh what a relief that there's some little part of this that I don't need to research and that I can just take from experience so you feel that you know a debut novel or a first big undertaking really should be steeped in what you know over what you don't know that you know that's really the way to kind of 
get a lot of the residual emotions out so you don't have to make the same mistakes again. Well, I, I think that what you don't know is so inevitably going to dominate that putting in some of what you do know is never going to be a problem. It's never, you know, you're, you're, you're unlikely to overdo that. I mean, I guess I could imagine someone who came and just wrote an autobiography and called it a novel or whatever. Um, but, but that's certainly not what I was doing. And I can't really imagine doing that because the material wouldn't take a novelistic form. You know, the experiences from my life aren't really novelistic. Uh, and so I, I guess more my position is don't be afraid of including what you do know in, in the mix because it will automatically get transformed and subsumed into yeah. this fictional thing. But at what point during the writing this did you realize that your subconscious was a lot smarter than you gave it credit for? I mean, you don't always know this when you're writing a short story because it's kind of more reliant upon you know having a plot. But you can actually kind of deviate a little bit off, the, off of that in terms of, you know, longers and so forth in a book. And I'm wondering, you know, at what point, maybe during that two-thirds draft you had before you came here, you, you looked at this and said, oh, shit, I, I actually know more than I think. Who the hell is this guy on the page? Yeah, that, that, that was a really nice experience when it happened. It, I, the way I thought of it was... Boy, that was easy. That little part was easy. Wow, that joke just came automatically. Oh, I don't even remember writing that paragraph, but it really, it really does something useful. Um, those were those were the most enjoyable parts of the process. And of course, as with anything where you go into a sort of automatic state, those are the parts that I don't remember the experience of. I only remember looking back on them and sort of recognizing them a little bit. So how much of the automatic writing was a carryover from your automatic writing from the big guardian in terms of reporting on something? Uh, I mean, writing is writing in a way. You have to get out of your own way regardless. Um, I have a... The, the revising instinct is something that I have pretty strongly and I enjoy revising. And, and if, 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 if I've written a couple pages yesterday, then I'm, I'm excited to get to my desk today and, and go over them and make them better. Yeah. Uh, and so really that, like the automatic writing part, uh, is, is only... I only think of that as like, oh, well, I got to go generate some material to then work on and, and turn into a novel. And it, it might not be the part that I'm most enthusiastic about. And it's often the part that I'm most sort of anxious about or dreading or not looking forward to. Uh, but then after it's done, I'm so pleased that I've got it. So we were talking about Aunt Veal earlier, and yeah. I actually wanted to bring her up again because uh, at the very beginning of the book, you have Eric taking ecstasy. But what's very interesting is that aside from mentioning some, you know, college experience of, of learning drugs and all that, he really doesn't ingest any more drugs throughout the rest of the book. And it seemed to me that Aunt Veal came in to kind of put the kibosh on any kind of exploration of Eric's drug habits. And I'm wondering if that was indeed the case, that this was kind of a character trait you couldn't quite make work and you decided to just go ahead and just put the nub to with this character well he smokes pot with her right he does um, and, very briefly and yeah. he doesn't he doesn't enjoy that very much yeah. he, he has those two uh experiences of taking drugs the ecstasy at the beginning and then yeah. the smoking pot in the middle and neither of them really go very well for him uh i i do sort of think of you know there are the scenes in the book that take place in in the book's present when he's an adult and then there are scene, the scenes that take place in the book's past when he's in high school uh and then there's a sort of gap in the middle during which a whole bunch of stuff happens and he gets from denver to san francisco and he does the startup and he makes a bunch of money um and and i sort of thought of it as whatever drug experiences he has and alludes to most of them took place in that gap right there yeah. So I also wanted to talk to you about the end of the book. From the gallery scene onward, uh, I, the book kind of just 
develops this explanation for events that seems to come out of nowhere. It's almost, I mean, it's not like a Deus Ex Machina, but it's it's very, it's something that I was like reading this, where is this coming from? I mean, why is this particular explanation being explored? And then it's just so elaborate and, and, and Baroque. And yet I got, I mean, I, on one hand, I got the sense like, oh, well, you know, I think uh, this Roth guy is trying to really sort of wrap up and tie everything up. On the other hand, it, it, it kind of flows in a, in a weird uh in, in a way that just just seems to work, and so I'm wondering to what extent that ending was predetermined, or if it was really just a race to to the finish of this particular manuscript. I was really curious. Sorry, I'm not 100 percent sure. You said uh, from the gallery scene from, onward. From the gallery scene onward, which is, that's where, the where we have you... the stuff with like, is this uh, a repressed memory and all that? There, the book starts to do this total left turn hmm. where it changes its tone from being about Eric to being about these larger ambiguities and it just it, and all of a sudden there are these a couple of like lengthy explanations it's sort of like it goes from this kind of freewheeling exploration where you're batting between Eric's childhood and his adulthood yeah. and then you have this and it's sort of like wait, where is this coming from yeah. is it a need to it's like it's it's a need in some sense to wrap up the book but at the same time I, I also enjoyed it and so I was it, I'm asking you was this predetermined was this kind of a deliberate form formalistic kind of tie-up to sort of show that there are no conclusions or, or what yeah um okay thanks I, yeah. I, I guess, no problem no problem yeah, yeah. I'm sorry um I, th- I i think the turn that you're talking about comes about halfway through the book that it's not just the ending of the book but that that there's a, a sort of the way i think of it there's a sort of turn in the middle of the book where the first half has sort of has sort of set up expectations that this book is a kind of romantic comedy. Yeah. Uh, that it's about this guy who's troubled in this way that's sort of funny and also sort of tragic, and he's trying to make it work with a girl, and he's trying to have a relationship, and, and is he going to have a relationship or not? Uh, and then halfway through, there's this turn, and it, it becomes about, as you say, it becomes about something else. Uh, and... The way I thought of that as I was writing it is, it, I'm less interested in, like, can this guy seduce a girl and find happiness? I'm, I'm more interested in, I'm less interested in the problem of finding love and making girls like you. And I'm more interested in the problem of, okay, what do you do once you've made a girl like you and you found love? That's when the real problems start. And that's what it was like in my experience, in a way, that I, I spent a long time, you know, as a sort of awkward teenager, I spent a long time thinking, well, if only I could be charming and get girls to like me, that would really be terrific and all my problems would be solved. Uh, and then I became, you know, a basically functioning adult who was capable of having a relationship with people. And, and then everything just gets much more complicated. It doesn't solve all of your problems at all. And you have to really... Get to you, you have to know someone and really be close to someone, and those complications are more complicated and more difficult. Um, and and that seemed more interested, more interesting to me. And so, the form of the book sort of reflects that switch in my experience and in the character's experience. I th- I think we're talking about two specific elements. If we're talking uh-huh. about the actual episode, the revelation. Uh-huh. Um, because to my mind, I was reading that, and when that actually happened, the book still continues to be relatively good-natured, uh, <laughs> despite this dark episode coming to the surface. I'm uh, talking about the moment in the gallery where all of a sudden um, it becomes more about like expository expo- you know, explanation, and it becomes more about trying to atone for this and making this very uh, seemingly simple thing far more complicated, and sort of burgeoning the kind of binary toggle between boyhood and adulthood you know because i to my mind that revelation was part and parcel of that because uh-huh. he's going back and he's starting to see patterns 
uh, okay, we have some similar situations about fatherhood. That's possibly why we're together and all that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, so I guess my question to you is, I guess it's twofold. Now we're dealing with two separate issues. You know, how did you make this, how did you keep this book so good natured despite the fact that this, there's some real dark shit that's exposed? Uh-huh. And number two, you know, the kind of expository kickstart in the, in the Los Angeles gallery, uh, that just seemed like a complete twist in terms of, of tone. Uh-huh. And, so we're talking, I think, about, because um, I, I, I guess I'm looking at it for more of a stylistic yeah, shift, yeah. shift as opposed to emotional, because that emotional tone was pretty contained. I'm yeah. giving you a compliment on that. No, I, I, yeah. I appreciate that. And now, okay, now I have a better, yeah. uh, I have a better understanding of what you're talking about. Um, the, there's the scene in the in the gallery in Los Angeles where he goes to talk to Maya's father, uh, and we we leave Eric's perspective for a while. Yes. And we go into the story that the father tells him. Uh, and I wanted to do that because we had already heard from Maya. We had, yeah. she had already told him her story, and we had seen her perspective a little bit. Uh, and for for the ambiguity to fall the way I wanted it to, we had to hear from both of them, and they each had to be to whatever degree convincing or at least sufficiently fleshed out that you could inhabit their way of seeing things for a little while. Uh, to the degree that that there's some expository stuff in there, I, I guess I think of that as a necessary evil. That like there there's just some background yeah. that I couldn't count on the reader having, and I, I had to put it in there. It had and, to come out somewhere. Yeah, and hopefully so I this was it, all predetermined. Then. Yeah, that that we would have to explain some stuff about those psychological issues. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, and I it was a balancing act in terms of you know is there too much is there too little um and every reader comes to it with a different amount of background and so sure. for some it will be spoon feeding and then for others it will be insufficient to really lay out the situation um but that's the kind of compromise that you have to make um but that was your second question um your first question was in terms of the tone remaining good-natured throughout yes. um and i i appreciate your saying that and i appreciate your responding to it that way that was my my goal at least was that uh well, it, it didn't feel like some sort of ABC after-school special. We're getting serious, yeah. talking about sexual abuse, you yeah. know, which I, I appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, my 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 hope is that um, there's nothing in the world that, if you are sufficiently open about it and sufficiently compassionate to it, that isn't funny in some way or yeah. doesn't have a that can't be treated in in a way that also includes humor. I, there, there's a tendency in some quarters to see humor as inherently only for the light stuff to yeah. see humor as opposed to seriousness um and in if there's one thing in the world that i'm dead set against it's that tendency uh and, and i remember you know in the most genuinely tragic moments of my life those are the moments when i've most clung to humor as not as a distraction but as a way of understanding and being understood by other people uh, as a way of really communicating with, with with some kind of intimacy uh and that was the the kind of humor that i wanted to put in the book was the kind that doesn't distract from from pain but that really expresses pain in the clearest and and most compassionate possible way were you ever concerned during the writing of this book that you were contending with certain tropes of lad lit or boy fiction you know that oh shit no matter how uh how much i invest it with darker issues or sense of place or uh uh, social concerns or anything like that i'm immediately going to be pegged into the sort of benjamin kunkel 
uh, Nick Hornby, uh, that type of book where it's about just, you know, yet another damn book about some 20-something growing up. I mean, you know, to, to what degree, I mean, how early were those concerns in your mind? I'm wondering. Yeah, absolutely they were in my mind. And, and they come up as soon as you realize that you're writing a story about a young white guy in a big <laughs> American city looking for love. I mean, that's just sort of intrinsic to the material. What kind of unique experience is that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, haven't we heard enough about that? Uh, and and, and I, I, I'm simply Clearly we have not. That's why we're talking right now. More white male colonial yeah. imperialism. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm sympathetic to anyone who who reads a synopsis and says, "Oh my God, why would I want to read another one of those?" Um, I I was hopeful that there would be enough um, in the book that doesn't just fall into that category, or that isn't by the numbers of that category, that uh, that it could, you know, be interesting even to people who are sick of that stuff. And and I, in many ways like tried to get away from that in, to the degree that I could or tried not to be locked into that perspective throughout the book as much as I could. Uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, the trouble is you write the book that you're going to write. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and you, you try to avoid cliche, but to the extent that you're in a category, then you're in a category. Do you think those styles enough to get you out of that kind of white male ghetto or, or, or doing the sort of what we've been talking about, some of the bouncing around in terms of tone, in terms of flipping between boyhood and adulthood, this is enough to kind of get yourself off of that kind of pegged track. I mean, especially now, like if there is a, any kind of book now that is some sort of white male 20 something, I mean, I'm, I'm even inclined to sort of, you know, turn, turn the other cheek and say, I don't want to read this. I almost did that with yours. And I, to my surprise, it actually captured my attention. So, you know, sure. And I, I've had that experience too. Yeah. Um, you know, is is it sufficient? I don't know. It depends on for whom. You know what I mean? And and it depend. And there's two different things that we're talking about, right? We're talking about like what's your response when you read the flap copy, which was oh I don't know I've seen a lot of this stuff, and what's your response when you read the book itself, which hopefully is oh actually I haven't seen this particular thing before. Uh, and you know you can't write the book with your eye on the flap copy. I think, and it's too bad because the flap copy is really important. But uh, you you, you got to write the book for the book. On the other hand, I went to your website and I noticed there were all these TKs and bracketed uh, uh, example, exemplars to be filled in. So it seems to me that you also uh, have some kind of potential resentment or sarcasm about this kind of labeling. I mean, you know, what 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 does experience mean today, especially white male experience, when we kind of turn to fiction to hear other voices? I mean, how do you f create an, an other when you're coming from a white male privileged perspective? Yeah, I'm, I mean... I don't think I feel resentment, or if I do, I think it's pretty buried. I think what I feel, if I think if I resent anything, it's just there's so many books out there. There's so many people writing books. Many of them are just terrific, although many of them are not terrific. Uh, I, I would love for everyone in the world to immediately drop everything they're doing and pick up my book and read it and respond to it thoughtfully in whatever way they can. Um, but the minute you say that, you'd out yourself as a narcissist. What, right. And I, I resent, sure. And I resent the, 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 the fact that the world is set up so that that is not going to happen because yeah. I'm only one of six billion people. Um, it, I think in, in terms of, you know, in terms of deciding what to write and writing from position where we've heard a lot from that position already uh you know all i can do uh is is write the best book i can and and articulate my own experience and my own stories as as thoroughly and deeply and specifically as i possibly can and some people will be interested in that and some people won't be interested in that and and in the end i'm i'm fine with that 
So how many of your stories in the MFA program were from a white male 20-something perspective? Uh, many of them. Most of them. I, 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 most of them. I remember there were a couple of things where I would try, uh, you know, taking on the voice of somebody from a different cultural position. And that's a really interesting thing to do. And maybe I will at some point be able to do that in a way that feels successful to me as a piece of fiction. Uh, it, it's only worth publishing if, if it winds up feeling successful as a piece of fiction. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think, what do you, why do you think you can't explore sort of another perspective along those lines? What is the hindrance? What is uh, getting in the way? What, what, how do you, I mean, is it a matter of just you believing in it? I mean, what of this? Well, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. And obviously some people have done it, have written from other people's perspectives very successfully and engagingly. I just finished um, The Orphan Master's Son, yeah. which is a magnificent book, which somehow inhabits a person who spent his, who grew up his whole life in North Korea, and it's yeah. by a white American. Uh, and, and of course, if I could find a, a angle on an experience like that and could turn it into fiction as successfully as that, I would be thrilled and delighted. And, and Again, maybe I will. This is my first real sustained attempt at anything. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and I don't know what I will do next. And probably I will try a bunch of stuff and, and a lot of it will fail. And hopefully I will recognize when I'm onto a loser early and, and not put too much time into it. So why do you think it ended up being this privileged guy who came out of Denver? I, th there's a bit of a distinguishing. Uh, uh, well, there's more. There's, he's done you, but yeah. but you know why do you think you these elements that separated him from you? How, yeah. how, where do you think they came from? Well, that was really conscious. Um, you know, I began not really. I wrote the first few scenes and played around with the voice, not really knowing much about the guy's background. Um, I knew that he had this kind of self consciousness and that he was preoccupied with with finding love um, excuse me and those were the main things that I knew about him uh, and then as I was as I continued writing I, I was pretty clear that this guy could be at that point could have been a sort of uh, alter ego for me uh, and I, I, I didn't want to do that because I wanted to have more freedom and I wanted to get some distance from the character I knew that I would need that in the course of the novel um, and so I made a bunch of conscious choices to separate him from me uh, and the first one, and I think the most important one, uh, I had a really nice family and really nice parents who were loving and kind, but also literate and intellectual and gave me a good education. And there were a lot of books around in my house. And so I feel like if I am starting to write a book, I, I have all this help from behind me. I have this big push from behind. Uh, and I I wanted to think about this character who, who similarly has this very verbal mind and similarly is very um, intelligent and, excuse me, uh, I don't want to imply that I'm very intelligent, but similarly sort of seems to be able to articulate things in this particular way. Uh, and, and I wanted him to, to not have the advantages that I had had and to have sort of come up with that himself, even in very unpromising circumstances. So I put him not just in the suburbs, but in a kind of crappy, not that well off, and certainly not very well, not not very cultured suburban environment. And I gave him parents who didn't love each other, and a father who wasn't very good at loving him, and a mother who did love him but couldn't really do very much else for him. Uh, and I wanted to see how far he could get on his own, kind of. Um, and that was the beginning of having distance on the character and being able to treat him like an autonomous person. Is this one of the reasons also why he really has no ideology to speak of? I mean, here's a guy, 
He didn't vote in the 2000 election. He really is not willing to consider the moral impact of taking data from users and selling them to a corporation and that kind of invasion of privacy, which, boy, by the way, your, your, your timing here with the headlines was great. Um, but also, when he does actually speak uh, at this conference, he's espousing basically pro-corporate values. Was this another way to kind of distinguish this guy from you? Or were you also trying to explore kind of the um, the diminishing of principle in this particular San Francisco milieu? Uh, no, I think it's, it's more the first thing that you suggested than the second. Um, it seemed to me that one of the effects of of having come pretty far and achieved quite a lot from those unpromising circumstances is, is that there would just be some big gaps. Uh, and I think political thinking and, and, and having a whole sort of ideological worldview, uh, it, it would just be a gap. Uh, he, he would never have run into that. I have whatever political views I have, but I have them partly because I was raised in this sort of, uh, you know, upper middle class Jewish intellectual sort of environment. And I, I have a set of beliefs and opinions that are basically consistent with, with that kind of upbringing. Uh, and if I had come from somewhere where politics was never discussed at the dinner table and there wasn't even much of a dinner table, um, who's to say what my political opinions would be? Yeah. Or it could just very well be that politics really doesn't work very well with fiction. Yeah. Maybe, was this one of the, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on this? I mean, you know, the minute you imp include politics in fiction, it becomes grossly dated, even in the matter of years, especially now when politics constantly changes. And now any sort of political heft to a novel immediately makes it historical. Well, I, I think that's particularly true nowadays because we have this thing in America of two political cultures. Yeah. Uh, and within those political cultures, Things are so uh, homogenous that is, you and I are talking in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and and if if we were to go out and talk to people on the street in Brooklyn, New York, we would have to go a really long way before we would find someone who fundamentally disagrees with us on some of the really basic things, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe not. You're shrugging, and and, and I may be overstating well, I, uh, the case, I, uh, but as someone who regularly goes out in the streets and hears all sorts of yeah. variegated viewpoints, sure. I, I would disagree a little bit. Sure. No, I'm sure I'm well, overstating. Well, yeah. I'm sure I'm overstating the case. Uh, but it, it, it's difficult, I think, to write about politics in America now in a way that's specific to the individual, which is what the novel for me is all about. Um, in a way that really gets at what separates this guy from the other guy next to him. Or there's a scene in the book at a dinner party where everybody's talking about the Iraq War. Uh, and the, the Eric, the narrator's um, reaction to it is mostly not focused on the, the um, intrinsic aspects of the topic, um, but he's just observing the way in which, well, why are we all saying the same things? Why do we all agree about this in such a specific way? There are some people who don't agree. Why are none of them here at this dinner party having this discussion with us? Uh, and I, I, that's, I, I won't say that's the most important question, because the most important question at the time was, should the U.S. government invade Iraq? And the answer, it turned out, was no. But uh, it's the most important, it's the most salient question I think that a novelist can address through the form of a novel rather than the form of an argument. I'm, I'm curious. This is a sort of uh, out of nowhere, seemingly reductionist question, but I am curious about your thoughts on this. And that is, do you think that we have reached a point now where 
the idea of the great American novel no longer applies. That the big overstuffed social bric-a-brac of novels from the 20th century that we once read in droves is just now no longer doable. That now society has become so broken and fragmented that really it comes down to everyone taking a little corner and then that's really the way, that really is the present American novel. It's not so much this kind of massive, uh, you know, making it sound like it's some sort of massive wager against society or something like that. Those days are over? What do you think? Well, I, I think to the extent that there was an idea that there was a novel that could encapsulate everything of America in a given moment, I think that was probably always a myth. Well, Augie March is pretty damn close. Yeah, there. Are, I mean, there are wonderful novels, but, uh, you know, The Infinite Jest yeah. contains a lot of stuff. Um, uh, I, I've just begun The Flamethrowers, and it contains a lot oh, of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you got the card, too, that you have to read The Flamethrowers, because everyone now has to have an opinion because all these critics are fighting over it. West Coast, East Coast, Biggie Tupac, right? Sure, <laughs> no, but I, you know, my wife read it and yeah. said it was great, and I wanted to read it. Um, it, it, it you know, I don't know, I, I haven't gotten very far, I don't know what it will contain, but it seems like it, it takes on a, a bunch of stuff in terms of radical politics. Uh, which is an important part of the 20th century. And, and the friends and novels are great and have a lot of stuff. And I don't think there's anything obsolete about a big novel about America or some aspect yeah. of America. Um, I, 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 I think the novel no longer has the kind of cultural centrality that it used to have. And, and that's both an advantage and a disadvantage for the novel. Um, but I, I don't think the scope of what the novel can do has shrunk particularly. Yeah. Or is there a sort of myth applied to the idea that it has to be a big, massive novel that takes on the scope? That uh, I mean, what would your example be of, like, say, like a novel that addresses the scope in that way that doesn't nearly get the same attention as the latest friends or whatnot? Yeah. I mean, of course, there, there are novels that I care about that are more miniaturist. And of course, with this book, I, I was trying I was not trying to write a massive epic. I was trying to do something that could be done in, in 250 pages or whatever it comes out to. Uh, I think there's a tendency in like the world of book discussion to prize heft because it's a it's a thing that you can see from a distance. You know, you can see how thick the thing is. Um, but you know, people like a big book. People like a, an epic, and that's fine for people to respond to that. And we need some shorthand way of filtering out all of the filtering down all the books into some manageable set to talk about. So I, I guess that's fair enough in a way. Um, I, you know, I, to some extent, having written a, a small book, um, I would love it if smallness were prized in the same way that I would love it if books with orange covers How were very Machiavellian of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the same way I would love it if any book with an orange cover was automatically taken or, very seriously. Or, for that matter, any book with the last name of Ross. Yes, exactly. There not are all, just the Phillips. There are all sorts of filters yeah. that we yeah. could use that would be advantageous to me, but it's not really... Books that begin with the... Yeah, plenty, plenty. Well, that does seem to be um, gone pretty well. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's not really up to me to decide what, we're, what the culture is going to want to take seriously and want to talk about. So how do you get a culture that is more interested in the season five second part of Breaking Bad or America's Next Top Model to, to how do you get them onto fiction? I mean, is it through individual portraits like this or is that just not even a consideration? Well, you know, I, it sounds grandiose to say uh, I was trying to switch the culture over to reading fiction by doing X, Y, and Z. And I'm, now, now we're now you're we're now really we're re gonna, reading a therapeutic yes, conversation, exactly. which I'm going to have to steer you off of exactly. these kinds of uh, anyway. Yeah, no, now now we're really in the world of my narcissism. Um, 
I, I did have the idea going in that uh, if you're going to write fiction nowadays, when, when fiction is no longer the, the central event in terms of people's entertainment, uh, that you should work to make it as entertaining as you possibly can. That whatever else you want to do in the book, uh, you can't count on the reader's attention. And so you should try to reward that attention as often as you can with things that are interesting or funny or appealing or tragic or ideas that are thought-provoking or whatever. Um, I, you know, we can disagree about, or people can disagree about how successful I was in doing that. But certainly, uh, I, I was conscious of trying to keep the reader's interest as I was working. Okay. Well, that seems a good place to end on this. Gabriel, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you.